0: as we begin. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord, would you, by your grace and mercy, address the hostility that is in our hearts against you? Lord, would you bring healing to those parts of our lives where we are trying to be in charge and in control? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, we were blessed by an amazing story. It's the most famous story Jesus ever told. It's known as the prodigal son, and as we discussed together, and as many of you uh, shared with me afterwards, you know, it's really a story about the prodigal father, prodigal meaning uh, recklessly extravagant. And this is a story about a father who lavishes extravagantly love on the rebel son. And it's a very moving story. But it's not just about the rebel son, it's also a story about the father's lavish love on the elder, really dutiful, really responsible son. And we saw that Jesus offers healing to both, that he runs out to meet the rebel son, but he also runs out in the middle of the party to try to invite the elder son back in. It's an incredibly moving story. He loves both his children. He invites them both in. And then as we progress now, the fifth Sunday of this Lenten journey, we are journeying with Jesus. And what we see is that the conversation with the elder son continues, but it takes on sort of a different tone now. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that Jesus, who says in Luke 15 that he tells this story to those religious leaders who trust in in their own righteousness, he continues that teaching ministry, that conversation to try to invite them into the grace party, the kingdom party, but they won't have it. And so the tone of the conversation continues to heighten, and there's going to be an ongoing dialogue now between Jesus and the religious leaders that's going to heat up as we move towards Palm Sunday and Holy Week. When you get to Luke 20, things have heated up to the point at which they have begun to question the authority of Jesus himself. The whole first half of chapter 20 is them questioning whose authority is this and who are you? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Is kind of the conversation. But it takes even a step forward from that. They reject his invitation and actually a fight breaks out a fight breaks out. I uh, uh, was telling you at the beginning of the service that this last week, my son Tucker, who's here, I'm not trying to embarrass him, but like all of us, he's in those middle school days and years. And he came home from middle school this last week and asked me, dad, were you ever in a fight? And uh, I won't give you the answer I gave him. Uh, There were a few fight scenes. That we encountered and we talked about, and I shared, and it was amazing the kind of attention I had for that hour from my 12-year-old son about fight scenes. Fight scenes are alluring; they're traumatic. They they catch your attention, and I'm telling you, this scene right here that we just heard Father David read is a fight scene, and it's a fight scene on two levels. One, it's a fight between the religious leaders and Jesus. And we're gonna look at why it's a fight scene between the two of them, but I want you to see a deeper truth that's here that this is actually a fight scene that goes on in between your heart and my heart and our God. It's a fight not only between the religious leaders and Jesus, but it's a fight that happens inside of all of us between us and our Lord. And you go, no, 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 Brian, I'm not quarreling with God about anything. Me and God are good. I beg to differ. Because the natural state of the human heart apart from the grace of our lord doing what only he can do is that you and i are not only kind of frustrated with god at a very deep level but we're actually hostile towards god and this story helps us to diagnose that this fight that's between jesus and the leaders is also a fight that's inside of all, all of us what he's going to show them and us is that they want to be owners they think they're the owners And what Jesus is going to say is, not only are you not the owners, but you are actually called to be beloved children in the vineyard. You've got it all wrong. There's only one owner, and you're not it. This hard truth of wannabe owners, this fight scene that breaks out. There's a few characters that I want us to see. Jesus uses a really ancient story, though, that doesn't just jump out at us in North Texas, right? We're not owners of vineyards, most of us, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, Many of us, uh, I don't know any of you, actually, who are tenant farmers. I have a little brother who's actually a grape grower in a vineyard, so he would connect with this. But here's the story that he tells Israel. Why does Jesus use this story? Because it was so common in their day. He uses something really common in their day to tell them, it's like this, it's like uh, the owner of a vineyard, and, and he let it out to certain tenants. And this story would have been really deep in the imagination of all of those that were part of Israel as Jesus spoke, because they knew, ancient Israel knew, that God had called Israel to be nothing other than his vineyard. It was in their poems, it was in their prayers, it was something that they rejoiced in, that they had been taken out of Egypt and they had been planted as God's own vineyard in his land in Jerusalem. They were his vineyard and this was part of the imagination of all of the hearers as Jesus spoke. And he says, I'm gonna tell you a story and he's telling the people the story, but he knows that the ones that are really overhearing him, the ones that he's telling, he's picking a fight. Because his hour has come, it's time. He's here to lay down his life in Jerusalem and he picks a fight. And he picks a fight by showing them that they are actually tenants who have become uh, become to act like their owners. So three or four characters. The first one are the tenants, the second one are the messengers, and the third one is the son, the tenants. Tenants. Because of my West Texas accent, it doesn't really roll off the tongue very easy for me. These are people that have leased a portion of a vineyard to tend on behalf of the owner. They are not the owner. They tend the land that they have leased at the risk of the owner's investment and at the reward of the owner's investment. All the risk and all of the reward is that of the owners, not those who have leased the land. They're tenants. But they have become... They have come to the place where they are acting like they're the owners of the land. And Jesus tells this story. That basically he says, you know that Israel is God's vineyard, but he's put you in charge to be tenants and you guys are acting like owners. Now, just get to the point, Brian. Here's the point. You and I do the same thing. You and I act like we are owners of that which God has entrusted to us. We act like we're in charge, like we're in control, like it's ours, like the risk is ours. And so we get really um, anxious. We live really fragile lives, those of us who ha- have come to accept this idea that it's all up to us. We're, the vineyard's ours and we've got to produce a harvest and it's all up to us. We get really fragile, we get really anxious, but we also, we, we want the reward. We act as if it's all ours. A couple of examples of this. Well, um. This one really confronts North Americans in a number of ways because we think it's up to us to do what we want with our bodies. That our bodies are ours and we can do whatever we want with our bodies. But you're a steward of that which has been entrusted to you, including your bodies. Your stuff, your possessions, your money, your jobs, your education, anything that is in front of you in your lives, even your own physical bodies, You're not the owner. You're a steward. You're a tenant. And in a culture that um, really believes the opposite, we're not just sort of indifferent to what I'm saying. We hate it. We're hostile to it. Um, I said in the the pre-team prayer meeting with those that serve throughout the service, uh, it's like the Miley Cyrus song. You guys know who Miley Cyrus is, right? Young prophet of our age that she is. Um, I think the title of the song is "We Can Do What We Want." Um, if I've got that wrong, you can correct me afterwards. But listen to these amazing lines: "It's our party; we can do what we want." I'm sorry if this is now it stuck with you all day. "It's our party; we can say what we want. We can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. We like to party. We like to do whatever we want. This is our house. This is our rules. This is the the narrative of the land that we live in in North Texas." We're living and acting and making decisions as if we are owners and we are not. We are tenants. We have been entrusted with something to steward. And we are not just sort of, ah, okay, Brian, whatever. No, we're not indifferent to this. We're, we're, we hate this claim of ownership on our lives. The religious leaders really hate what Jesus is saying. And I want you to know that the natural posture of every human heart is not indifference towards this, but hatred towards it. I told this story three or four years ago, and I want to share it again because it illustrates this point so well. We were at a local ranch. Uh, My son knows that I love him, but I'm picking on him today. We were at a local ranch, and the owner had one of those really cool side-by-side vehicles, like a four-wheel drive golf cart. You know what I'm talking about? And he just let it out to us. He let us use it. He was the owner, but he let it out to us. And so we got to joyride all over the ranch and enjoy it. And I think Tucker at that time was six or seven, and Emory was three or four. And um, he really wanted to drive. And open land, it seemed like low risk. So let's let him drive. He couldn't quite reach the gas pedal or the brake, so he had to kind of stand up and drive at the same time. If you can see the image. And things weren't going really well. And I was trying to give him instruction. And Tucker, very responsible, but he can drive a golf cart really well now. He's very good at it. But at six or seven, he was not very good at it. And things got a little dangerous. And I, being the brilliant father that I am, said, you know what? Hang on, pause. We're all gonna get out of the car, the the cart, so that you know you don't throw us around and you can just kind of drive on your own. Now, here's some instructions. And I gave him further instructions. So here's how you brake, here's, here's how you steer. And he kept repeating, and those of you who will remember this story, this is the punchline. He kept repeating, dad, I got this, I got this. Okay, okay, well, remember this, is how so he starts driving and this was, I didn't highlight this because I was kind of too embarrassed to admit what I had done. I put myself and my three or four-year-old daughter and my wife at great risk outside of the cart in open pasture land. It's just a big space. We're probably fine. But eventually the circles made their way to where his little sister is right in front of the cart. And I'm not kidding, utter shock and awe is on our face. We scream at the top of our lungs. He's about to run over his sister and I promise it wasn't intentional. And he finally manages to stand up and break right before running somebody over. Utter silence, shock. We're like heaving in fear. And the first thing that breaks the silence is a seven-year-old saying, I got this. (laughs) We learned some good lessons that day and one of them that has stood with me hopefully forever is that the natural state of my heart is like a seven-year-old behind a four-wheel drive vehicle saying, I got this. That's the natural state. And I have a heavenly father Who's inviting me to be a beloved child in his vineyard? And instead of enjoying the joy of being a child in the owner's vineyard, I act like I'm the owner. And I lay claims, I grab hold of control and steer. I can't even touch the gas pedal or the or the brake. I don't even really know how to steer, but I I just I got this. And we're not relaxed about it, are we? We're not, no, no, not apart from God's grace. Romans 8, one of my favorite passages that helps us to understand sonship and daughtership, also helps us to understand this, and it says this about our natural state. For our mind that is set on the flesh, our natural mind, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's rule and reign. Indeed, it cannot. Now, is there a stronger word available to us than hostile? That's our natural state to God's claim on our lives, And he's alongside of us, helping us, speaking to us, running out of the party to meet with us to say, You're a child, you're not an owner, and you're my child. And our response well, what is your response? How do you respond to the claim of Christ on your life, on all of your life? How do you respond? Well, Israel over time didn't respond well and the religious leaders didn't respond well. And so God in his grace sent messengers, the second category, messengers that came out to the vineyard to say, hey, newsflash, you're not the owner. God is the owner and he loves you. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity and prophet after prophet was sent to them and they rejected every single messenger that came in to say, all the risk and all the reward is not yours. You're not the owner. And they rejected that over time and time again. What about you? You you have God's gracious messengers in your life and so do I. Sometimes these come in the form of uh, what some have called holy friendships Uh, I didn't plan this, but one of my best friends in the world is here today and he's a holy friend. You know what a holy friend is? A holy friend speaks truth to you as it is. A holy friend fights for your maturity in Christ with you all of life. You have friends like that. We need friends like that. Every one of us needs friends, community around us that will fight for our maturity in Christ, that will help us, to come to the place where we delight in being a son or daughter. That's our primary identity. He sends these repeat messengers. Sometimes it's real Christian community. Sometimes it's pastors. Sometimes it's just life. When I was a kid, uh, it was a sermon preached by Chuck Swindoll. I don't know if he was quoting somebody else or if he wrote this, but he said, life is like a coat that never seems to fit. Life keeps coming at me and it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit right. It's not what I expected and it's not what I need. God, where are you? Why are things going this way? Why are they not going the way I wanted them to go? This is a providential messenger. See, life has a way of reminding you and I that we're not in charge. And this is not something that we take uh, easily because we want to believe that we're in charge. Where are you grasping after control? Where are you afraid or fearful? This is the space. This is the, the thing that in this Lenten journey, you are being invited to come to the cross on Good Friday and release or today. Sooner. Release control. Release fear. The older brother last week wanted to be in control, and you and I can relate to that. I know we can. What about you? Where are you acting like an owner? The last one, the son. We know eventually in the parable Jesus tells, he ends up saying, eventually the owner sends his very own son, and the hostility of the tenants grows so great that they ultimately reject the son himself. And as we come into this journey into Palm Sunday and Holy Week really soon, what we're going to see is that this natural posture of the religious leaders is true in our hearts as well. They end up wanting to kill him. And it happens right here in this moment. He issues this indictment through this story. I told you it was a fight scene. They want to take his life. And Jesus responds by saying, Did you know he quotes a really common thing from their prayer book, as it were? Something that every Israelite would have known, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was a phrase and this whole whole metaphor of the stone and the cornerstone was something that all his hearers knew. And Jesus says, I wanna tell you, that's happening right now because I'm the cornerstone. I'm the center of all reality. And unless you build on me, as the center of all reality, as the foundation of your life, then if you don't do that, my rule and reign will crush you. It will be a crushing blow. It will smash you to pieces. You will be a fragile, anxious mess the rest of your existence unless you orient yourself to the cornerstone. And so this morning as we come to the table together, as we consider God's claim on us, what I want to invite you to do is, he already owns it. Would you transfer your sense of ownership to him? Would you become a child in God's vineyard? As followers of Christ, what you and I are are not people that have it all together all the time. What we are, are, we, are we are people who understand that our natural state is like that seven-year-old behind the wheel. And instead of that, we're invited to and trust ourselves. Um, I had many conversations with many of you last week after studying the Prodigal Father passage. And what stood out to me was how persistent the voice of hell is in our lives. You know, at the beginning of our Lenten season, we begin with Jesus's temptation. And at the end of our Lenten season, we end with his condemnation and him taking the cross from temptation all the way to the cross. And then we know what comes at Easter. But at his temptation at the very outset of this journey, there was the voice from heaven who said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is the voice from heaven. In the very next chapter now, the voice from hell is so persistent, so pervasive, uh, repeats, repeats, you're not who God says you are. And that's true of our experience. You and I forget who we are, that we're children in the father's vineyard. We get so preoccupied as if the risk is ours or the reward is ours, but we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Now, for those of you who like cartoons or who are younger, uh, pick your category. uh, I wanna end with a little Toy Story illustration. Famous little cartoon, if you don't know, from Disney, Toy Story. I think they're on their fourth or fifth uh, film. The very first one, though, there's a scene that captures this idea of ownership Uh, Woody, who's the cowboy, and Buzz, the space ranger, have been taken captive by the evil Sid. You guys remember this, if you know the movie? They've been taken captive by the evil Sid in the next-door neighbor's house. And it's a struggle. They long to be reunited with their owner, Andy. And in captivity, they begin to question their identity. And they begin to struggle with, with, with who are we and whose are we? And Woody proclaims the gospel to Buzz. Did you know that? He says, over there in that house, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. Buzz starts to kind of let that soak in. He lifts up his boot. You guys remember this? And on the bottom of his boot, there's a claim to ownership. It's got the name of his owner underneath. And Woody tries to connect the dots. He says, right there in permanent black ink, that's that little boy and you're his. You and I, in a similar way, struggle to believe that we're the apple of his eye, that he hides us under the shadow of his wing, that he's our father and all the risk is his, all the reward is his. We get to delight in being his children. He delights in us. And instead of responding in this very childlike, vulnerable way, what we typically do is we fight or flight. We either pick a fight over this ownership or we run from it. But God is inviting you to be rightly related to his claim of ownership this morning. Would you do that? As we come to the table, would you, in a way, with your hands open it be an expression of your claim to ownership over your life saying, God, this is me. This is all that I am. And I entrust everything to you, my father, and yes, my owner. And would you receive the gift of sonship and daughtership as he gives of him his very self to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and mercy, your persistence to come and find us. God, we're so thankful. Would you chase after us this morning? Lord, for those that are still hostile to your claim of ownership, would you soften their hearts as they hear the gospel story proclaimed that you, you took the price, that you paid the pardon, that then you could call us your very own Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy and draw us to yourself this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.